<laughs> All right. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will, have, will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this word. We're so thankful for the chance to study it and be encouraged by it. Um, God, we're, we're challenged by your scripture in our hearts, and we just pray that during this time you would encourage us and strengthen us uh, that we would know uh, what it is we should walk in and how we should follow you, uh, that we would give our lives completely to you, that we would uh, scorn the flesh and walk in the Spirit, God. Um, <clears throat> Lord, I pray for um, your direction in this message. Holy Spirit, I just I ask that your words would be spoken, not mine, uh, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would convict us and challenge us. Um, and, and though it may make us uncomfortable, God, I pray that you would move us forward to the cross. They would stand before Jesus, um, righteous and worthy, not by our own efforts, not our own strength or holiness, but rather in the righteousness and holiness of Christ. May you be exalted this morning in the preaching of your word. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so for uh, there's a couple, few visitors here uh, <clears throat> this morning. So just to let you know uh, what we do here at, at uh, Restoration, we're walking through the scripture one passage at a time. Uh, so... As it turns out, I don't really pick the passage that we're in in a, in a way. I'm just walking through one book at a time, trying to understand the context of the book and preach out of that context. So, uh, you know, we got some fun, challenging verses to walk through this morning, as usual. Um, and, uh, and, and so I just encourage you to listen to Peter as he speaks to a church that's being persecuted for their faith in Christ Jesus. And he's challenging them on some very hard things and challenging them very much at the heart level. As we've looked at over the past few weeks going through 1 Peter, we've seen him challenge them to be good citizens in an empire that is ruled by a dictator who uh, doesn't care for Christianity at all, right? Like uh, in, to be uh, good, uh, good employees to employers who may not have uh, any desire to do good to their employees, uh, to be a good spouse to another spouse who may not even believe in Christ Jesus. Okay? So Peter has challenged the church to continue to stay steadfast in their commitment to following the Lord's word in spite of some very difficult challenges. And here he is again 
we have to remember speaking to the church with these words and challenging them uh, right where they're at and right with what they are struggling with. So he picks up um, with this. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Um, I don't know about you, but like definitely early on in my Christian life, I'm going like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to cease from sin. Like, like, can I stop sinning? Can I cease from sin? And some people are saying, yeah, like, how do I, how do I do that? Um, and what, 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 the, what Peter is getting at here is that once you have come to a place in your life, when you choose to suffer for the sake of Christ, rather than obey your flesh, you're stopping sin at that point. Your motives and your desires and the bent of your heart is so changed that sin is not even on the table for you. You don't have to be worried about where the line is on anything. You are so beholden to the nature of Christ Jesus and changed and transformed by who he is. And so Peter is saying to the church, once you've come to a place where you're willing to uh, you know, be a Christian in the midst of an unchristian boss, be a Christian in the midst of an unchristian spouse, be a Christian in a culture that is persecuting for your faith, once you're to the point of saying, I choose Jesus in spite of these afflictions, sin is like not an option for you. You're walking away from it. You're running from it completely. Sin is stopped. He challenges them to embrace suffering for righteousness sake as an identification with Jesus. And we're reminded of 1 Peter 2, 22 to 24, where it speaks of how, how much Jesus took on. It says this, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore, his, or, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If you're willing to take on this following of Jesus in this way, if you're willing to suffer for righteousness to the point of being unjustly accused in the thinking of Jesus, then Peter says, you have ceased from sin. If you're willing to be like Jesus and go to a cross and in spite of the fact that you did nothing wrong, take on affliction, then you're choosing the spirit over the flesh and sin has no bearing with the spirit. He expands on it in verse 2 and says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. What has happened in life, if you've followed Christ, is that you have exchanged the ways of the world for the ways of the Spirit. You've made an exchange, right? You've, you were walking one way in the wisdom and intellect and knowledge of the world. Saying, oh yeah, we just do what my flesh wants. Whatever I desire, I can actually attain it and get it. And I'm just going to go after that because God has put something in my heart, or something is in my heart, okay? And I'm just going to go for that because that's what's good. What's in my heart is good, and so I'm going to go for that. That's the way of thinking of the world. And Christ has stepped in and said, no, there, there is another way. The Lord has revealed there is another way, that there is sin and brokenness in our life, and these uh, heart desires, these sinful desires are hurting us, and they're hurting one another, and they're hurting those around us. And God has made a, a more uh, clear path for us. And he says, listen, I've made you a way in Christ Jesus. Just like Galatians 5, 16 to 17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify 
the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So he challenges the church here in Turkey and says, hey, listen, like, I know you're getting pressure from the world around you to be like them, to walk in their ways and do the things they do. But resist. Resist the pressure of the world's, uh, world's arguments against you. They may be pressuring you uh, with ostracizing you. They may be pressuring you by making fun of you or maligning you or accusing you unjustly or what, ha- what have you. But continue to walk in the Spirit because you have a greater and deeper hope than this world has. Before I jump into these next couple verses, I just again want to remind us, as I have many times before, that Peter is writing to the church. Peter's addressing the body of Christ in this letter, okay? And, uh, you know, we come up against these exhortations from Paul and Peter and the apostles uh, about sin, like in 1 Corinthians and other places, and James even, right? Where you're going, well, surely not in the church. Like, surely, surely this is you know, speaking against the world, right? Like that, that these apostles and, and leaders are speaking out against those in the world that practice these things. Not so. Peter is addressing the body of Christ and saying, you may be struggling with this. You may be dealing with these things. And let me make it real clear that you've got to run from this stuff because it's a lie and it's trying to entrap you and hurt you and harm you and harm those around you. So I want to remind us that Um, that Peter here is writing to the church, which means a couple of things. First, um, people who associate with the body of Christ were struggling with these very things that we're about to talk about. People who are saying, I I follow Jesus, or I follow, um, you know, I'm part of the church. They were struggling with these things we're about to talk about. So, first of all, if you're fighting these things, then you should not lose hope. Right? If Peter is looking at the body of Christ in his time, who's being persecuted for the faith and going, listen, I'm encouraging you to stop and run from these sins. Run away from them. They're the way of the world and they're damaging to you and to those around you. If he's saying that to us, then we should take courage in the fact that there's a a church 2,000 years ago that was struggling with things as difficult as this. And that you too might be struggling with those things today. And that, that's a thing. So if you are fighting things in this list, if you're tempted by things in this, this sin list that is after this, then don't lose hope. Okay, Peter wants you to grasp on to the gospel in this moment. If you're tempted toward these actions, toward these Uh, these ways of thinking and this way of living, know that there's still hope for you and that the gospel is here for you and that there's something better for you in Christ Jesus. There's a a bigger hope in this life for you to stand on. Second, however, Peter is emphatically calling these things out that we would not be ruined by them personally, and that we would not ruin the witness of the body of Christ to a world around us that has no eternal hope. 
the reason Peter is so valiantly and boldly standing against the, the power of sin and darkness is that the gospel would continue to go forth boldly and powerfully. So he's challenging us, all of us, wherever our heart is, to cling to the gospel, to resist, resist sin and resist the devil and pursue Christ. When you pursue Christ, you cease from sin. And this is where we're called to live, to live at the foot of the cross, to live, yes, in affliction and, and uh, harm to what our flesh wants for, but rather to life in what the Spirit has for us. So if you're struggling with these things, don't lose hope. Continue to cling to the gospel. And if you're struggling with these things, run as fast as you can. Run. Run away from the ruin and destruction that this kind of living can do to you. If you're even close to it, okay, you're playing with fire. And so don't play with fire. You will get burned. First Peter 4.3 says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Just step back real quick and say, when he's speaking about Gentiles, he's speaking about those who do not follow the Lord. So for us, that's like we're Gentiles too, but how does that relate here? Peter is talking to the new Israel in a, in a way, okay, to the new people of God, and saying those who are not the people of God act in such a way. So don't get thrown off by the Gentile language, because you're a Gentile most likely if you're not a Jew. So anybody, yeah, anyway, so, uh, so, so you're probably a Gentile. But don't take that in, in the terms, oh, well, we live like Gentiles, so this is how we live. Nope, nope, nope. Gentiles means unbeliever for us, okay, someone who does not follow Jesus. So if the time is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What he's saying is, the time is past for operating according to the flesh. Okay, before you knew Christ, you operated in such a way. You just did what your flesh wanted you to do. You satisfied every whim and desire that your flesh told you to. If you want to drink something, you went and drink something. You want to be with somebody, you go and be with somebody. All these sorts of things. You just did what your flesh wanted to satisfy what the flesh wanted. And Peter's saying the time is, has passed for that. If you're claiming the name of Christ, that time is over. Run. The time has passed for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I'm not going to walk through all the definitions of these things. I think you guys can probably figure it out a little bit, uh, so I'll let you kind of deal with that. I'll point out sensuality is just uh, the satisfying of all the desires of the flesh. Because I was wondering about that word. Like, what, what are we referring to as sensuality? What we're saying is your flesh has desire. Whether that's to eat something or drink something or do something or go somewhere or whatever. Your flesh has desire. Okay? You have things you want to do just because you want to do them. Not because you're led to do them, but because you just want to. Right? Everyone get what I'm saying with that? Your flesh has desire. And sensuality is to say whatever the flesh wants, I'm just going to do it because I want to and I can. I'm American. That's like, it's literally... Like where we're at, sensuality. Passions here refers to lust. Drunkenness, drunkenness. Orgies, orgies. Okay, drinking parties, not a good deal. Stay away, right? 
Lawless idolatry. Lacking any moral standard at all. Okay? The, the idea behind lawless idolatry is that you have no morality standard. Anything can go. It's just whatever my heart says is right, is right. Anyone familiar with that kind of a culture? I think we are. Lawless idolatry. So this is a big list. A lot of things, and uh, you know, a lot of us look at this list and go like, no way in a church, right? Churches don't have this kind of problem. Peter's writing to a church, right? Peter's writing to a church here. That's scary. I think we'd be naive to conclude that our world has restraint in these areas. I think it would be naive to conclude that our world has any restraint for these types of things. Rather, um, we must acknowledge that our hearts are, or once were, bent toward such things. Our hearts are bent toward satisfying our flesh, to walking in lust, to, I mean, going to drinking parties. Like, I'm sure that's, whoop, didn't break. Our flesh is prone to desire drunkenness, escape, right? I think we'd be naive to conclude that that hasn't been a struggle for us or isn't a struggle for us. We have to acknowledge that our hearts are wrestling with these things. And yeah, maybe you're not to the point of this description, right? But think about where you are at in your struggle. This is the trajectory of that, okay? So Jesus says, if you even have lust in your heart over a woman, that's adultery. What is he saying? The trajectory of your heart is toward that. And that's theoretical, yes, but it's also actual. I think that's what Peter's saying. This is an actual result of us just doing what our flesh wants to do. And so we must acknowledge that our hearts are or once were bent toward this kind of activity. And second, if that's the case, if our hearts are bent toward this kind of a thing, right, bent toward this kind of activity, then we should never be putting ourselves around people while they are engaging in what is described here as lawless idolatry and debauchery. When people are in this state, like specifically this state, okay, not like, you know, out to dinner and had a, had a glass of wine kind of a state, but like drinking parties and drunkenness and the like. This, this list, okay? When people are in this state, their ears are so impaired by their flesh and what they're operating in that you might as well be trying to debate a two-year-old. That's, that's just the truth of it. Like, if you're talking to someone who is inebriated completely, you're not going to have a logical conversation with them that they're going to remember. That's just truth. If you're so caught up in your flesh that this is the stuff that you're engaged in, there's no one that's going to come in and be like, hey, can I give you a track and talk to you about Jesus right now? I'd love to present the gospel to you. 
that's not happening in, in this particular environment, okay? So you don't need to go to a drinking party. But you might bring up a passage that we read earlier today. Luke 7, 34, which says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And say, See? Jesus associated with drunk people. Jesus associated with the tax collectors and the sinners. So it's okay to go hang out with people that are doing these things. No. That's not what we're getting at here. Okay? The difference is that Jesus was never drunk at a drinking party. And too often we look at Jesus and go, well, if I'm going to be like Jesus, then I'm going to go hang out with sinners and tax collectors. And that's not it. Okay? Hear about someone, you know, like, complaining about who was in the club while they were in the club? Why were you in the club? You saw them in the club, you're going to judge them for being in the club, but why were you in the club? Right? That's the thing. Jesus was called a drunkard not because he was drinking, not because he was drunk, not because he was participating in this kind of activity. Jesus was called a drunkard because he had the audacity to even talk or socialize or, loose, uh, or, or uh, be, be among these people. He had the audacity to talk or socialize with those labeled tax collectors and sinners. That's why they called him a drunkard and a sinner. Not because he was out there partying with everyone at the club, but because he had the willingness and ability to go to that person in a sober-minded state and say, hey, let me help you. Let me talk to you about what the kingdom is. Let me invite you to follow a different way, a different path. So listen, if you want to follow the way of Jesus in respect to gospel engagement with sinners and tax collectors and the drunk and and, people that are engaged in these activities, okay? If you want to be a friend of sinners like Jesus, then you must also have the integrity about yourself and the willingness to speak as Jesus did to sinners in love and say, go and sin no more. Okay, Jesus was called a friend of tax collectors. He was labeled a drunkard, not because he was drunk, but because he had the audacity to love those who were the least of these, in spite of what they were caught up in and labeled as. Not because he was approving of their activity. And so often we just get that mixed up and just go, oh, See, Jesus is a drunkard. He's hanging out with the drunkards. It's good. It's fine. No big deal. No. He says, go and sin no more. Because this is destructive to you and to those around you. The truth is, I think we all know that. Holy Spirit is telling you that is true right now. So I don't really have to argue that point. Peter goes on to say, with respect to this, with respect to this activity, the world is surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. 
The world looks at this group of people here in the country of Turkey that Peter is writing the, this list to, and, e- and even to us, and says, listen, the world around you is going to look at you and call you holy rollers. They're going to malign you. They're going to accuse you. They're going to look for uh, ways to get you, whatever, catch you, all this kind of thing. So don't be surprised when they try to malign you for standing for a moral value that you have and that you've been given in Christ Jesus. Rather know this, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I'm glad I don't have to be the judge. I'm not the judge, okay? And the truth is, as a Christian, I don't have to go around pointing out people's sin. I was really, like, freed of that even that thinking, and I kind of knew it a little bit, like, growing up, but, like, we were working through 1 Corinthians, and it just says, like, the Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit is the one convicting hearts right now, okay? I don't have to go around pointing out people's sin, okay? The Holy, that's the Holy Spirit's job. So you don't have to go out on the street corner and say, you're a sinner, and you're a sinner, and you're a sinner, right? You don't have to do that, okay? You just have to hope and trust in the gospel of Christ Jesus, and love like Christ love. And guess what? Holy Spirit's going to do the job of conviction in our hearts. We all know when we've done wrong. We all know when we're in wrong, okay? It hangs on us like a burden that we cannot bear up on our own. It holds us down when we're interacting with people, right? We, we feel like they're seeing inside of us, even though they have no idea what's going on. Guess what that is? That's sin exposing itself to your heart. And so Peter's advice to this church is don't be surprised if they malign you when you don't want to join in. And don't even worry about it. Because you're not their judge. The Lord is their judge. The righteous Lord Jesus is their judge. He who knew no sin, yet was accused and hung on a cross for you. He's the one that will judge. The one who was holy and created the whole world and stepped into it and lived a perfect life and and died on a cross. He's the one that's going to judge. Are you holy or are you not? And you're going to say, not by my strength, but only by the blood of Jesus. I hope and I pray. Verse 6, he goes on to say, For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is a bit of a perplexing verse for me on first read, but it actually makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to try and explain it as best I can. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. So what he's saying is not that Jesus is preaching to dead people. Okay? You've got to read it real carefully. For the gospel was preached was, in the past, it was preached to those who are dead now. Like, they're dead now. They weren't dead when they were preached to. They are dead now, okay? So that's the framework. Jesus isn't going around preaching to dead people, okay? We kind of talked about that a little bit last passage with the preaching to angels and all that stuff, and that maybe gets a little confusing. Well, you can talk to me about that later if you want to. (laughs) That was fun. Um, Jesus is not preaching to dead people. There's not like a second chance after you die to like, can I get in by the skin of my teeth like on a second, a second opportunity? It's given to man one life to live, and then judgment is what the word says. 
And so the gospel was preached to those who are dead. That though they're judged in the flesh the way people are, that is, they died, they would live in the way the Spirit does. or They would live in the way God does in the Spirit. The argument that was being made to the Christians at this time was, man, okay, you're talking about all this morality and, and following the way of your God and following His laws and, and uh, operating in marriage the way He decides that we should operate in marriage and operating with your finances and with alcohol the way that He says you ought to operate with alcohol and finances and all these things. And, like, what good does it do to you? All your people are dying. That's literally the argument. He's saying, like, what difference does it make? We're all going to die. So, like, how does your faith save you? Your, your people are still dying. Even your great saints are still dying. So how does your belief set help you if, if your people are still dying? That's the argument. So yes, the, the gospel was preached and received by Christians who have now at this point died. But guess what? In receiving the gospel, they live in the Spirit, as Peter put it at the outset of his letter, 1 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 3-5. to 5, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those Christians at this time that Peter is writing to, who have died on reception of this letter, he's saying, yeah, they're dead. They were judged according to the way bodies are judged in this world. They died. Their body is passed away. But they had an eternal hope because of the gospel that was preached to them. And that eternal hope has saved them. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter shifts uh, at verse 7 from talking about this idea that the world doesn't understand the morals of Christians. They say, like, look, your people are still dying, even though they're moral or whatever, or they're living according to the Spirit, as you say, or whatever. They don't understand the church. They look at the church going, we don't understand. Your guys are still dying. You know, what's the deal? And Peter's saying, the deal is that once you die, you face judgment of the one who is just. And so your hope better be in him and not things that just satisfy your flesh. Because like we talked about last week, if your hope is in anything other than Jesus Christ, then you've missed it. If your hope is in something that can help you, then you've missed it. If your hope is in something that can hurt you, then you've missed it. Okay? So often we hope in things that help us, and we also hope in things that hurt us. We think that we're just going to escape from reality and this thing that is breaking down our bodies, our relationships, or whatever, is hurting us, and we've placed our hope in that. And that could be any manner of things that is hurtful to us, that we place our hope in.
So he shifts from discussing that, that the world doesn't understand you and they're going to malign you for the way that you live your life. And he turns to instructing the church on if you're not to live the way the world is living, then how are you to live? If you're not to live according to the flesh, what does it look like to live according to the Spirit? And he starts in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. It says the end has come. Okay? We're, we're, we're at the conclusion of history. Christ has come. The final major action in, in God's movement in the world is complete. His son has died. Okay? The authority of uh, the angels of, of darkness are, is defeated at the cross. Okay? It's, it's finished. The work is finished. He's taken on our sin. He's taken on the brokenness of this world. And he has defeated it by his power. Okay? The end is at hand. It's here. So walk in the power that you received in the resurrection of Christ Jesus and do these things. He gives a list here, a, another list, a better list okay, than the others. He says, first of all, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says, listen, the end is here. So you need to pray. You need to be praying. You need to be talking to your Father in Heaven. You need to be listening to what He is saying to your heart. Not what I'm saying. Okay? I'm a mess. Okay? <laughs> I told you last week how much a mess I was last week. I'm a little better this week than I was last week, but I'm still a mess, okay? I am not perfect by any stretch of the means, okay? I don't get enough time preparing. I don't have enough time to do the things God's called me to do. I don't. I only have what I have, and I do it to the best of my ability, but I'm a mess, okay? You have to be praying, because I'm not enough for you. If, if all you're getting in your relationship with the Lord is a message from me on Sunday, you are woefully disappointed. Because there's not enough here. There just isn't. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be falsely humble in that in any way. I'm just saying, if 30 minutes of speaking from me is all you get from the Lord, it's not enough. It's not enough. The Lord wants your whole heart. He wants every part of your life. And so he says, listen, the end is at hand, so pray. Pray. Get in connection with your Father who loves you, who wants to minister to you, who wants to speak to you and challenge you right where you're at. And how are you going to pray? He gives two qualifications. His be self-controlled. Do you have control of yourself? I didn't have control of myself yesterday, last Sunday. I didn't. I told you guys that. I walked in, threw my keys against the wall, shut the door as hard as I could because there's water on my floor, right? I didn't have control of myself. Guess what? As a result, I was not necessarily in a state of prayer. Okay, I was not self-controlled. So I'm asking you seriously, I mean, are you self-controlled? Are you in control of what is happening in your life? The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's in the list. If the Spirit is at work in you, then self-control should be happening. So if you're going to pray, be self-controlled. Second, be sober-minded. Be of sober mind. Don't let any influence in your life direct your thoughts. Let the Holy Spirit be the one that's speaking, not anything else. He is powerful enough for you. So be sober-minded and self-control. Pray 
Because the end of all things is at hand. I was trying to come up with an illustration for this sermon, so I'm sorry I didn't have one. But the only thing that came to mind was just this reality that God put in my heart that um, you don't have enough time. Like, you're out of time. <laughs> like, you're out of time. The, the clock is up. Like, there's no more time left for you. You know what I mean by that? But like, I'm saying with my life, I don't have time to accomplish the things that I need to accomplish, right? I'm saying that, right? But you don't know your next breath. Like, you don't know if you have enough time. Your time is up. I think what Peter's challenging us with is like, the time of salvation, the day of salvation is today. You don't have any more time to bank on. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not. And so he says, the end of all things is at hand. It is here. It is present. If you're going to live in power beyond that reality that you don't know what the next step is, you don't know if it'll be there, you can live in a real authority and power when you know what the next step is, even if you don't have enough time. Okay? Because I know that when I die, I'm in the presence of Christ, I don't have to worry about the next step. Does that make sense to you? Like, I know if, if this next step is death for me, I'm in the presence of Jesus because I know where my hope is. And so when he's saying the end of all things is at hand, what he's saying is you don't know if you've got another step or not. So be sober-minded, be self-controlled, and pray to your Father in heaven who loves you. Second, he says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I struggle with this one too. I was trying to figure out what he means by covering a multitude of sins. It's not the sense of because you love, like because you are loving, you are, uh, anoint, uh, are um, atoning for your own sin by loving. Okay, Like your action of loving others provides no atonement for your sin. The only thing that provides atonement for your sin is the death of Jesus Christ, okay? And his blood shed for you, okay? That's the only thing that atones for your sin, that pays the penalty of your sin. Okay, so he's not saying that if you just love people, that will atone or cover sins. What he's saying is that love looks over, covers, disregards sin, we, as a church, love one another earnestly in spite of the fact that we look around each other, right? Look at each other in the faces every Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Sunday mornings, all these kind of things. We look at each other in the faces, and we say, you know, maybe you've been hurt by one another, right? Maybe you know that someone has hurt one another, okay? Love, earnestly, means that we know we're sinners, okay? We know we're broken, we know we're busted up and not worthy of this. And we know also that by the power of Christ, we can love each other still. I can look over your sin to the heart and image of God that he has created in you and love you with all I have. And I'll do it as long as you stay. 
love covers a multitude of sins means that I'm looking past sin, and I'm willing to forgive 70 times 7 times, as Jesus says it. I'm going to look past it and go, okay, what are we doing today to move forward? I love you, and I want the best for you. And so in spite of what is in the past, what do we do to look forward? Keep loving one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sin. It takes the sin out of you and looks at our own brokenness and says, I love you in spite of you. Verse 9, he says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is for all those community group hosts. <laughs> Clarks, Farrells, you know, carts at times, Sawyers sometimes. <laughs> Maybe people hosting people in your houses. <clears throat> Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I have to be better at this. Okay? This is a coffee shop during the week. I steward this coffee shop during the week. It's very easy for me to grumble, okay, in my heart towards children in my coffee shop. What? Sorry. Just being real with you guys. Sorry. It gives me panic attacks, okay? Like watching everything move around and thinking, after this, we're going to have to get ready to be at business tomorrow morning. Like, I, it freaks me out. And I grumble in my heart, okay? Okay, so I'm, I'm telling you, just being real honest, I know you deal with the same thing. You want to host someone, God tells you to have someone over, whatever. Don't do it with grumbling. Do it because God called you to do it, and stop grumbling. Just make clear boundaries. You know, it's good. <laughs> you <don't have> to <sighs> Show hospitality without grumbling. Be hospitable to one another. When we're interacting with each other, we get to know each other. We get to know each other and get to see our brokenness and see that, oh, you're just as broken as I am, and, but yet your hope is in Christ Jesus and in him alone. Okay, and we get to be encouraged by the fact that we're a bunch of broken vessels trying to bump around in this world and that our hope is in Christ. And even though the culture is looking out on us like we're weird and crazy for believing in Christ as the only one that can take us to heaven, we can still look at each other and go, man, I'm with you. Let's keep trudging on. Let's keep pressing on toward the goal that is before us. So show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Mm -hmm. Verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. This is a beautiful sentence. I love it. I'm a big fan of this sentence. We've been obviously pressing very hard on the planning center thing and the, all the apps we use to stay organized and all this, okay? Um, listen, the reason is I don't have all the tools. Marcus and I are insufficient for what needs to be done. And God has given us each gifts and abilities that we might serve one another well. He's given us great gifts. And God's word says that we are to steward the gifts that God has given to each of us as a means of God's grace. When you operate in the gift that God has given you, you are carrying the grace of God. That's a big, that's not just like I swept the floor. There's, like, there's grace in you sweeping the floor. 
There's grace in you punching the slides, right? There's grace in that. You're carrying the grace of God as you serve one another. That's huge. It doesn't take much. It just takes a willing heart and, and someone who has a gift, which God says each of us have. So, y'all got a gift. Congratulations. I have congratulations. You have congratulations. That's right. Exactly. So, use your gift to serve one another as stewards. God has given you a stewardship over a gift. He's put it in your hands, and you know what it is. He's convicted you about it, just as he's convicted you about sin. He said, this is the thing that you need to be using for the glory of God. And so carry it as God's grace to us. In verse 11, he describes two types of gifts. And I want to say types because there are many, many types of gifts. There are many, many gifts. And there are other places in Scripture where there are gift lists, okay? Lists of gifts that people have. And none of them are exhaustive, okay? Um, I don't think that, like, painting a Mother's Day photo or painting a Mother's Day painting is, like, listed as a gift. But it's a gift, okay? That's a gift. Josue has a gift of painting. I know that, right? So... Just because it's not on like, the list doesn't mean that you don't have a gift that is given by God. You've been given a gift to use unto the glory of God. If it doesn't make the gift list, it doesn't mean it's not a gift from God. So whatever God has given you as a gift, use it and steward it for the grace of God. But he separates them into two ways. And one is very personal, because he says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. I hope that every time that I come up here um, and speak, that I'm not speaking any new ideas that I've come up with, okay? If I'm, if I, listen, seriously, if I'm up here and you hear something that you're like, that's not biblical, that's not in the Bible, that's a Blake idea, that's an idea from Blake's head, then please tell me. My whole goal is not to come up with any new material, but just represent the word of God to you and say, this is the word of God. This is what it says, okay? If I were just doing it in my own choosing, I would not choose this passage, okay? I would not walk you through a sin list today. That is not my choice to go like, hey, let's talk about drunken parties and orgies. This is fun. So good times. Okay, good job. Have a great day. Like, that's not what I'm here to do, Okay? I'm literally just coming at you and going like this, and this is the next passage. We got to deal with this. How do we deal with this? I just want to present to you the oracles of God. And so if anything I say comes contrary to that, or you think it's contrary to that, or you have questions about it, or what have you, anything, even if you think it might be contrary, just come talk to me. I am available to you. I want to talk to you about your questions that you have about the oracles of God, which is not some special thing. It's literally just scripture, the Bible. The oracles of God are not some thing that is foreign to you. It's just the 66 books, the Genesis to Revelation, the Bible. Okay, that's what we're talking about. So my whole goal in speaking is to speak the oracles of God. So whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So in whatever you do, don't be serving out of your own strength. Don't do it because you just think, well, this is going to be better. This is going to run better because I think it's going to run better. Do it because God told you to do it. 
Okay? Do it because God put it in you, and you're serving as God supplies the strength to serve. Okay? Um, Marcus does a really good job of organizing our worship team. And thankfully, we've got a lot of really talented singers and musicians. And, you know, I think it's unwise, right, to have someone burn out by volunteering every single day or every single Sunday. Thankfully, we rotate and, and make sure you guys have some breathers and this kind of thing, okay? It's important for us to do that. It's important for me to have someone rotate and preaching occasionally, like have Luke come up and help, you know, help me take a break for a minute, right? It's important for us to not be supplying our own strength in the way that we serve each other, but rather being supplied by God. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The moment that any of this depends on human intuition or thinking or planning or whatever okay, is the moment it loses all its power and strength. It's very hard to figure out like, how you're to grow um, and continue to depend on God's strength. Because it's very easy to get prideful as you grow. And be like, oh, we're doing, we're doing something right. We're doing a good job. We're doing something right. See, the people are coming. It's very easy to start patting yourself on the back when you see success, right? What is very hard is to remember that any success is God's. Every fruit that God gives is from God and not in my own strength. He might have used an ability he gave me, but guess where I got that ability? From him. <laughs> guess where we got the passing of the sun and the moon around our earth? God, right? That's why we take a whole day and go, I'm not working today. I'm just going to acknowledge that all my supply and my provision comes from the Father in heaven who created the whole world. That's the concept of Sabbath, of pausing and going, it's all God's. That's the concept of tithing. I'm going to give you a percentage, God, because you've given me 100%. And I'm going to acknowledge that it all came from you by giving you a portion back. This is operating and serving in the strength God supplies rather than our, in our own strength in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Okay, so I'm going to go with a few things here as we close. First is this. Exchange the desires of the flesh for the will of God. Exchange the desires of the flesh for the will of God. There's no mixing the two. Okay? This is a binary decision. You can either serve the flesh or serve the spirit. You can't serve two masters. Okay? You can't serve God and money. You can't do it. It's not possible. It's oil and water. They don't mix. You got to separate them. We must actively resist sin. The world is pressing in on us just as it was pressing in on the time of uh, 1 Peter. Our own desires are pressing in on us. Satan is still trying to lie to us. So we must resist the schemes of the devil by the authority of the name of Jesus. Jesus went back to the angels that came among us, right, and preached to them that they are powerless. He proclaimed to them that by the blood of his, blood of his cross, they hold no power on humankind anymore. He has spoken to the darkness of the world and said, you have no power anymore. It is completely gone at the name of Jesus. It's done. 
It's finished. There's no more authority for darkness. And as a Christian, you can claim that in a second and it will be gone. The name of Jesus over this. If you're struggling with something and you're struggling with some desire in you, then start praying. Be sober-minded, self-controlled, and pray in the Spirit that you would get away from me in the name of Jesus. I don't have to yield to your power anymore. We must resist the schemes of the devil. James 4, 1-10 is just this great passage. It says this, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is an upside-down kingdom. We think that to get up, we go up. But in the kingdom, to get up, you go down. Okay? You get to your knees before God in heaven and go, I need you. I can't do anything on my own strength. I can only operate in your strength. And so I give you all that I am. Exchange the passions of the flesh for the passions of the spirit. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We cannot expect to be accepted in this world. It's so easy to just go along with what the world says and do what they say and operate in their wisdom, but we can't ex expect to be accepted by them. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've come to bring not peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her sister or her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is Peter's message to the church in Turkey. Yeah, the world is maligning you. Yes, they aren't accepting you. But listen, the Lord has given you an imperishable hope, an eternal hope in Christ Jesus. And so stay steadfast against the schemes of the enemy and walk in the Spirit. And quickly, this last thing, in light of the end of all things, pray effectively. Love earnestly, show hospitality, and use the gifting God has given you for the edification of the saints.
for the building up of them by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. It's hard to read. It convicts us deeply. We know that we're just a breath away from being enemies of God. So often we, we just deny you, Lord, and operate in our flesh. So often we just choose what we want or what our flesh wants instead of choosing you. And so, God, I pray that you would be convicting us, each of us, God, that if there's any bent toward the things we talked about today, that we would run from it, that we would flee it, that we would resist it, that we would be convicted, not by the opinions of those around us, but by the very Holy Spirit that is in us. So, God, we just invite you. We invite you to convict our hearts. We invite you to bring us before the cross again. And humble us, God, that you may be exalted. And that we may be exalted with you, not on our strength, but on your strength, God. Lord Jesus, we... We know there's so much in the balance every single day and we can't even provide for our next breath. We know that our time is up. We know that we can't create more time for ourselves. And so God, we entrust our every day to you. God, be in our work. Be in our families. Be in our friendships. Help us as a church to love one another looking over sin that so entangles and loving earnestly each other, even if that means speaking truth that hurts. Help us to show hospitality without grumbling as you lead us into providing hospitality. May we just enjoy it and not grumble. Lord, as you've disposed gifts unto us, as you spread them out among your church, may we use them, may we not forsake them. And God, help us to be self-controlled, sober-minded, that we would cry out to you for our help, that it, you would be our only hope in this life. Not the things that hurt us, not the things we think will help us, but you, Lord Jesus that you would be our hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.